0: Check one, two. Oh, wow, yeah, that sounds like a uh, you know got a little little ring there thanks uh all right, so the first thing I need to do is I need to set my timer. you know, I spoke at a conference last month and uh, at Long Beach Convention Center, and uh, I got like about six or seven minutes into my my presentation and before I realized that they hadn't started my timer, okay, I only had like forty five minutes, so I'm like. It, 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 it's like about 100 yards away from me to where the guys were in the booth. And I'm like, uh-oh, um, uh, I've lost my track of time. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? So uh, I just had to wing it. So I'm going to wing it with you guys today. No, nah, I've got my timer, so there we go. Set it for two hours. <laughs> awesome. Okay, uh, you know, I brought this big, thick book up here. Uh, this is what we call a word study series uh, it is the complete word study New Testament and uh, it's a, a, a book that gives us the ability to read and see what the Greek words were in the New Testament so it's like a parallel uh, in terms of the translation there so it's a great study aid I also have one for the Old Testament instead of Greek it's obviously Hebrew uh, and what I found that these tools help me to such a degree because it gives me the ability to, to, to look at the language itself. Because language, obviously, is probably the one of the most important tools that we have, right? We have the ability to, to, to speak with one another. Uh, it's the tool that God uh, gave us to um, minister the gospel with. It's, it's language. You have to speak those things. So I think it's important for us to, to uh, educate ourselves on how these things work. So um, are we flying right here? Love God, love people. Thank you, guys. You know, a few years ago, a friend of mine asked me, first of all, welcome to you guys who are are the visitors. I see a lot of faces I don't recognize. So uh, welcome to Pacific Point Church. Uh, Thank you for doing life and and worshiping with us this morning. So um, as as, as it's been pointed out that our our pastors, John and Chris, they are on sabbatical. Uh, Please keep them in your prayers everybody and that God will strengthen them and, and give them the rest that they need and the vision for the church. Okay. So a friend of mine a, a few years ago sent me a note and he wanted to meet and he said, Melvin, uh, I'm going to be starting a church in Southern California. Here is the mission statement. Could you read the mission statement and give me some feedback on it? And I'm like, "Ah, absolutely no problem. And in his mission statement, it had the term like something like Learning to live and love like Jesus, right? And that's something that's very, very typical that you will find in a church's mission statement. Matter of fact, this is part of ours right here, isn't it? Love God, love people. Yes, oh, wow, you guys actually know. I'm impressed, good deal. So it brings the question right here, what does it mean to love, okay? Sometimes we we use the words, but we have overused words so much that the words lose their meaning. So what I want to explore this morning is this whole term, love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of sharing. We thank you for the word that you've given us to bring direction in our lives. Father, we ask that you would uh, give us understanding. Father, you give us the ears of disciples so that we may be able to hear and understand the different things that you are broaching through your word, and Lord, that we, we ask that you would change us throughout the course of this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody say, amen, amen. amen. awesome. All right, so I'm going to start off with reading one of the most important scriptures that we have out there that defines love, and that is 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. It says this, if I speak with the tongues of mankind and angels, but do not have love I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, charity, and if I surrender my body so that I may glory, but do not have love, it does me no good. Right. Obviously, this is one of the most famous scriptures or portions of scripture in the bible and it also to me is one of the most disconcerting scriptures not that it isn't written eloquently actually it is it's disconcerting to me because it reveals to me that i can do all kinds of christian activity right I can do all kinds of things. I can be a real spiritual guy and, and preach great sermons. I can give all my possessions away. I can encourage people. I can prophesy. I can do all these great things that we exalt so much, but yet still not have love. So that means I can be in a situation thinking one thing, but it's not really the reality of it. There's another scripture in Matthew 7, 721 that really I I consider the most frightening scripture in the Bible, right? And it is Jesus talking to his disciples. He's saying, in that day, there will be people who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. And the word no, in in that case, the Greek word is ginosko. I did not have an experience, a relationship with you. Even though you thought that we were, to me that is terrifying. Because I can live my life in such a degree that I think I'm okay, but in reality I'm not, right? And there's actually a word for that. Uh, some people throw it out there, uh, you know, conspiracy theory word or whatever. It's called delusional. Okay, and the definition of a delusion is simply a belief that a person holds that is not based in reality and is not altered or modified when the person is presented with contradictory evidence. Again, it's frightening because that means that I can base my entire life, make decisions on something that I think is real, but it's not. Is that frightening to anybody else? Okay, all right, so I'm, as long as I'm not alone. Okay, so the alarming thing is that a Christian, a Christian, That's who Paul was talking to in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, can do all those things listed. They can can expound their time. They can give their money, but yet not do it in an attitude of love. So that gives us the question again, what is love? It's kind of like uh, many of you guys who know me, you know, I'm a college professor, and so, you know, everything I kind of do has this, like, academic, you know, you know, ring to it, sorry, you know, just, you're in school today, Uh, you know, so um, I teach critical thinking, right, and the joke about critical thinking is that if you ask five scholars to define critical thinking, you are going to come away with eight definitions, so there's many different ways to define it, and love is the same way, so if I were to ask Madison, hey, Madison, define love. She can give me her definition. If I say, Marcus, hey, define love, he can give me another definition. You know, if I would say, Tracy, define love, again, I will have multiple definitions. Let me give you an example, all right? Um, because, Because love is probably one of the most misunderstood and misused words in the English language. So I can say, I love USC. Actually, I do. I love going there. I love being on the campus. It brings me joy. Not because I'm a Trojan fan or whatever like that. No, because God did some incredible things for me when I was at USC. It's the site of one of the best jobs I ever had. I love that place. Then I can say, I love football. Okay? I'm sure a lot of you guys love, have your sports that you love, right, you feel good about. And it's not that I can't live without football. It's I appreciate what football did in my life, the putting the discipline, uh, learning concepts of teamwork, learning concepts of being able to function and follow orders. That did something in my life that gave me a solid foundation. I can say I love Pacific Point Church. I love y'all. I do. I do. I'm glad to see. You. I'm happy to get here every every Sunday. But then, that's a different type of love because I can say, I love my wife. I love this angelic gift that God has given me that I've been able to spend the last 31 years of my life with. But it's a different type of love. So if we break all these things down, okay, so what, what, what are you saying, Melvin? Saying that although English kind of, It's like spaghetti, you know, throwing it on the wall. And you come away with something different every single time in terms of trying to define something. Fortunately for us, the Bible is given to us in languages that are much more specific. All right. So the Bible is given to us in three specific languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. And I believe God knew what he was doing when he did that. All right, so what I want to do is I want to take a look at several words that define love. I think I'm frozen. There we go. We'll just have to do it that way. All right, so actually there's like eight different Greek words for love, right? But I'm only going to cover about four. And of the four, only two are mentioned in Scripture. So the first love that we're all kind of familiar with is eros love, right? Eros love, it, it represents sexual passion, and it's named after the Greek god of fertility. And even the Greeks, they feared eros love because they understood that there was passion and fiery desire that would actually kind of like drive people mad, you know, to, 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 to just jettison logic and follow that, that urge, Right? So that's eros love. The next one would be, advanced slide, there we go, storge love. Storge love represents a familial love. So it would be the bond that a brother and sister would have. It would be the um, bond that a father and a son or a mother and a, and a daughter have. An example of that in the Bible would be Ruth and Naomi. And um, that was the, uh, the, the, the mother-in-law and the daughter and they Basically, uh, sojourn together one another. The other type of love is philia love. Philia love is a deep friendship, right? You guys, we all heard the city uh, of brotherly love. What is it? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, that's where we get that name from. Philly is brotherly love. It's a love that reflects loyalty, uh, a love that reflects a, a, a relationship that's deep, Okay, uh, a, a strong bond between one another. Another example would be David and Jonathan. How even though, they're, that even though David was at odds with Jonathan's father, Jonathan and David were still tight. They were still good friends. And they were all the way until the end. Philia love is mentioned in the Bible. It's one of the words that Jesus uses and, and that Paul uses in, in certain sections in, in uh, the Scripture in the New Testament. That leads us to the fourth one, and that is something called agape love. How many of you heard that word agape before? Okay, a lot of people have. Okay, agape love is the type of love that's demonstrated between Christians. Now, agape love existed before Christianity, but it was something that was foreign to a lot of people because it was a type of love that was selfless in nature. It was love that wasn't limited to being extended to your family or to your friends. It was extended to everyone. So Max, if he had agape love, that meant that he would look not only at his wife in, 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 a, in a deep friendship, but he would say, you know what, I'm going to be friends with everyone who's here. I'm going to extend it. There's no, there's no cost. There's, no, um, there, there, you don't, there's nothing you have to do in order for me to love you. Right now, when we're looking at agape love, there's a deeper definition that I want to share with you guys. And uh, this big book that I have right here, I made mention of earlier. Um, this is where I got this definition from. Came okay? Greek uh, dictionary of um, the dictionary of lexicon of Greek language, something like that. So here, here's the definition love, a word not found in classical Greek but only in revealed religion. Translated charity in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, meaning benevolent love. It's benevolence is not shown by doing what a person desired, the person loved desires, but what the one who loves deemed needed by the one loved. For example, God so loved that he gave his only begotten son, right? He gave not what man wanted, He gave what he perceived man needed. And that is the crux of agape love. When we're looking at agape love, we're looking at the type of love or the type of action that is not based on what the person who is the object of the love thinks they need or what they want. No, it's the opposite way. It's what I think my wife needs and I'm going to give her that. I'm going to sacrifice my time, my life, and I'm going to give her what she needs above what I think or above what, or even what she thinks she needs. And uh, you know, we've had a lot of good conversations about that, right? <laughs> she puts me in my place every time, too. So agape love has the following dominant characteristics, okay? It values and esteems, okay, the object, person, you know, place, thing, being loved. It's unconditional. There's nothing that that person has to do in order to receive that value, okay. It's ready to serve. When we talk about serve, we're talking about laying down our lives. And how many of you guys know the most important commodity that you have in your existence is your time? You do not get time back. So the most valuable thing that you can give away is your what? Time. Money, you know, money is a time and foldable format. Okay, you can give money, but you can always earn more money, but you can't earn more. can't do that. So that's the ultimate form of sacrifice that, you, that, that we can offer one another. The other thing is that agape love... Contrary to the American culture and what we see in our movies and our television and social media, agape love has absolutely nothing to do with your feelings or your emotions. Nothing. Nada. nothing. Nowhere in any of the definitions or any of the translations does it say that I have to like you to love you. God doesn't command me to like you, but we have conflated liking and love. And I'm going to go into a deeper definition of that in just a moment. All right. Um, it's interesting. I read this article, and um, it talked about how we have just devalued agape love. And I, as a matter of fact, I'll put it up in just a moment. But let's 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 put something to the test right here. Here's Romans eight twenty eight. Okay. Some of you are sure you're familiar with this scripture. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That's us putting the word love there. Now, let's put the definition of the word love in there. So maybe it reads a little differently, huh? And we know that God causes all things to work together for, those, for the good, for those who esteem, value, and serve God to those who are called according to his purpose. And you can do this throughout the scripture, where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, if I put the definition of agape love there, for God so valued, he esteemed, and he wanted to serve the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's how that would read. And you can go on and on throughout the New Testament. Wherever you see the word agape, plug in that. Okay, and, and that's kind of like a truncated Definition of agape, because it's obviously much more expansive than that. Here's the quote from the article that I read the other day. Again, going back to our culture. It says, we spend too much energy on falling in love, and we need to learn more how to stand in love. It's written by a psychoanalyst. I don't know if the man is a Christian but obviously, there's some truth in that. We have dedicated so much time in our culture in the effort and the process of falling in love and that we don't even consider what it takes to stand in love. I mean, falling in love, I, how do you fall in love, by the way? Don't answer. Don't answer. Think, think, think the process through. You know, those of you guys who have spouses... You know, those of you who've had a significant relationship, um, how, how did you fall in love? You know, do you choose to stay fallen in love? Is that good grammar? I don't know. Um, but the significance of agape love is it doesn't have anything to do with the emotions. It's a decision. Agape love can be spontaneous, which means that, yeah, I'm going to, you know, love on this person. You could do that, yes. However, the main characteristic of agape love is that it's deliberate. It is purposed. You can make up your mind and and, and say, I choose to love. That can take time, or it can be fast, just like that. All right, you guys following me this morning? All right, so what we want to do is I want to cover Three directives that the scripture gives us when it comes to agape love, okay? So the first directive that we are given re- regarding agape love is we are commanded to, lo- to love the Lord, okay? God, remember, God can command us to love because love, agape love, is an act of the will. It's not an emotion. God will never command you to like someone. You heard me say that correctly. He doesn't command you to like someone, right? He commands you to love people completely different. And the good thing is, the way he has designed things, that if you expand agape love on someone, emotions generally kind of come later on. How many, how, how many people has that happened for you? You're just like, you know what, I'm going to love this person. I don't like them, but I, I'm going to give my all in this relationship. And then later on, Could be a week, could be a month, could be a year. You're like, you know what, this person ain't that bad. That's how, you know, I got to like John Blue. (laughs) I'm joking, John. I, You know, I loved you from the beginning. So we are commanded to love the Lord. And this is a scripture in Matthew 22. It says, a lawyer asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Basically, he's trying to trip Jesus up. But Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, your uh, soul, with all your mind. And the greatest, this is the greatest and foremost of the commandments. Now, it's, um, it's uh, amazing if you sit and think about those three things. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. All your heart literally means love him with your thoughts. Love him with your understanding. Love him with your affections. Love him with your intentions. All right? These are, again, these are very deliberate things. All your soul. Love him with the immaterial part or portion of yourself. All All your mind. Love him with your intellectual faculties. How many of you guys know that we can love God intellectually? He doesn't want you to be a Christian that checks your brain out before you come into the church and sit there and just passively get information no he wants you to ask questions he wants you to delve into things God is big he is not intimidated by your question I've learned that I'm like God I got some hard questions for you it's like fine let's go that's that's the that's the attitude that he has he loves us so much that he's going to give us the opportunity to ask those questions Number two, we are commanded to love others. Further on in the scripture in Matthew 22, it says, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, you shall agape, value and esteem, and work to serve your neighbor as you value and esteem and work to serve yourself. Enough said on that one, because that's a big one. You know, he, he actually he reiterates that in, <clears throat> excuse me, John 15, where he says, and this is right before the crucifixion in the garden. Jesus says that this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friend. You are to value and esteem one another. And that was the relationship that Jesus commanded, the directive that he gave the disciples before the crucifixion. Okay? Ah, ah, There it is. All right. You guys awake out there? Okay, cool. Let me get a little water here. Directive number three, and this deals with the world. It's very simple. We are directed and commanded not to love the world. Okay? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is 1 John 2. And if you go through 1 John 2, 1 John 3, 1 John 4, it talks a great deal about love. Takes a It talks a great deal about these things. So if you were to take that agape love definition and plug it right here, what would it say? Do not value or esteem or set yourself to serve the world. Do not, or nor, nor the things that are in the world. If any man values and esteems the world, then he's not valuing and esteeming the Father. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like black and white. We don't like a black and white world in our culture. We want gray. We want to we get as close to the line as possible, you know, before. You see, how, how, how close can I get to sin before I'm actually sinning? That's the mentality that we have in our culture, and it's perpetuated even more. But this is quite clear. And the reason being is because the things in the world are always going to draw you back. You know, one man once said that if you find yourself in a situation where you're stepping away from God, okay, you're, God's right here, and, you know, you're falling in love with the world, you're valuing the world, you're stepping back. If every time you take a step back, somebody's going to be there saying, you're doing the right thing. Before you know it, you're way back here, God is way over there. That's a trap that the enemy likes to set. It's amazing that even the world, the people in the world, people who are not Christians, they understand that there's something wrong. There's something off. Because another article that I read, it talked about the loss of agape love. And this is not a Christian perspective that they're giving. They're just taking that Greek word, love, agape, and they're saying, you know what, there's something wrong. It goes on to say There's a growing evidence that agape is in dangerous decline in many countries. Empathy levels in the U.S. have declined sharply over the past 40 years. With the steepest fall occurring in the past decade, we urgently need to revive our capacity to care about strangers. This, again, is a secular article saying this. Everybody knows that there's something wrong. However... The world, since it's in darkness, they don't understand what the solution is. Okay. We as Christians, we have that answer. However, if we don't understand how to apply that answer and how it works, then sometimes the answer doesn't do you any good. It's kind of like when I was in the seventh grade, <clears throat> we got those big, fat, thick textbooks you know, for math. You know, and I'm like, oh, all the answers are in the back. You're going to send me home to do the homework and the answer's in the back? Oh, that's easy. I know what I'm doing. And it, and giving somebody the answer without knowing what the problem is, that presents a completely different issue. All right? So that's what we want to do is we want to try to help address this culture that you and I are living in, our American culture, Jesus prayed that we would be in the world, but not of the world. And that's a very difficult thing to do. you believe that, say amen. All right. So, three ways that our culture can corrupt agape love. Okay. Three ways. The first way that agape love can be Corrupted or taken off track is it can be twisted. Another more graphic word is it can be perverted. Scripture says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, it's in 1 John 2. And what it's referencing is the nature or the carnal nature that we all have, the innate nature. And he's talking about lust. Lust is is, is very devious because the characteristics of lust is something that if we're not careful, we could fall into very easily. Because before we come to Christ, we are just simply, for lack of a better term, we are immersed in a culture that exudes lust. I mean, Jesus said that there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of the devil, or kingdom of Satan. And there's a principle, and that principle is this. The nature of the kingdom will reflect the nature of the king. The nature of the kingdom of God is based on agape love. Why? God is what? Love. God's going to value and esteem, and he's going to serve. He demonstrated that, right? However, the nature of Satan is based on lust. Lust desires to benefit self at the expense of others. I am going to get this job any way that I can. I don't care if I've got to tear down the other person in the office. I need to get what I want to get. You can see it in Corporate America, you could see it. I see it in education, okay? I see it all over the place. You could see it in football, a guy, you know, trying to get a position, and it's kind of like, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can short of killing that other dude to get that position. That's lust. Lust is degenerative, whereas love is generative. In other words, lust tears down, love builds up. That's the very nature of it. Lust is progressive. I'm not going to go into the scripture in James uh, four uh, one through three. I, I encourage you to to take the time and go over these things um, because there's a lot that's there. Um, lust is something that when, whenever we emphasize ourselves, whenever we put our needs above other people, we always will fall into the trap, or we are. We are, we are we are susceptible to the trap that lust is there. I mean, you see it with David and Bathsheba. I don't know if you guys remember that story where Bathsheba, she's uh, you know bathing on the top of a house. And, 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 and David, the king, uh, the Bible tells us that during a time where kings should go out to war, David stayed home. And he's watching her bathe. All right. And he begins to crave what he sees. All right. And then... Next thing you know, he's committing murder in order to get the woman. And and, and by the way, that that lust went both ways. Because I truly believe that Bathsheba knew that the king was watching. And she craved the attention. And it ultimately spiraled into this thing that David himself paid a lot for. He paid a heavy price for that lust. And that's exactly what sin does for us. You know, sin, uh, one man said, it it promises to serve, but it ultimately ends up dominating and enslaving us. So, lust, we uh, we can end up lusting after people, places, or even things. Number two, check my time. Oh, cool. I've got time. All right. All right. Number two, agape love, it can be, it can grow cold. There's another scripture in Matthew 24, 12. It says, and because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And Jesus was talking about the last days last days before his, his second coming, that the, the environment that people in the church would be in, it would be so lawless. And what lawless means, the, the, the Greek word is anomia. And what it literally means is casting off godly authority and taking on your own. And we see that all around us. We see examples of individual lawlessness We see examples of systemic lawlessness. We even see examples of ecclesial lawlessness where you have churches abandoning the word of God and say, you know what, we're going to marry homosexuals. Well, the Bible says you can't do that. That's okay. We're going to do it anyway. You know, it it, it needs to evolve. We can't be enslaved to 2,000 years. Good luck with that. Judgment Day, good luck with that. That's not going to work. So what's gonna, what eventually ends up happening to us, and this is where we have to watch out. We see this lawlessness. It's like a tidal wave coming at us. And we're like, there's nothing I can do. It's just coming. It just keeps coming. And you would think that the opposite of love is what? Hate. You would think that the opposite of love is hate. Well, before you get to hate, you go through another prog- process. You go through indifference. That's even worse than hate, because somebody can camp out in, in, in indifference, and there is nothing worse than looking at a person and say, "I don't care about you." Not that I hate you. I don't care. I don't care whether you live. Don't care whether you die. Don't care. And I, I marked you off. Right? That is something that we want to avoid, because. A person who's living an indifferent life or or living a lifestyle of indifference, they allow their love to grow cold like that, they've cut themselves off from God. Well, not necessarily. They've they've limited. They're still part of God. But they've limited the amount of usefulness they are to God. Okay, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, oh, I can give you, God can use you to maybe give some money, but God can't use you to go to that person's house and, and, and clean their floors and, 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 you know, if they're sick, help change their bedding and things like that. God can't use you to do that because there's a degree inside of yourself that you allowed to die or to grow cold. And that's what happens when something grows cold. It gets slower. Scary place to be. All right. <clears throat> Number three. Agape Love. Can be coerced. When something is is being coerced, first of all, remember how I said love is an act of the will? Okay, nothing to do with my emotions. It's an act of the will. Well, when I force somebody to do something that I want them to do, that's coercion. Okay? And we can coerce people in the most subtle ways. The first form is manipulation. Agape love can be twisted and corrupted by using the word or the term to get someone to do what you want. It generally takes the form of, if you love me, then you will do this for me. That's manipulation. I'm using my words, more specifically, using that term, agape love, to get this person, to do what I want. That's manipulation. Number two, or B, intimidation. This is when someone is using the word to force someone to do your will via the threat of punishment. Generally takes this form. If you don't love me, then this is going to happen to you. We see this. There's an epidemic of that going on in our culture. We call it the cancel culture. If you do not give us this, then we're going to riot. No justice, no peace. That's intimidation. God doesn't intimidate people. Doesn't have to. Doesn't have to. So he's never going to break his character. But this is something that we got to worry about. I got to worry about, hey, am I intimidating my students, okay. Am I intimidating my wife into getting what, getting her to do what I want to do, want her to do? There's a word for that. I'm gonna give it to you in just a moment. The third one is domination. Domination is when you're using a word to exercise control in a relationship. Right? Generally takes the form of because I love you, you should do this for me. And if you don't. You can go on into intimidation and try to take things away. The three of these, it forms a word. Basically, these three things, they're illegal. And what do I mean by they're being illegal? Remember, love is an act of the will. And if I do any of these things right here, manipulate, manipulate, intimidate, dominate, I am circumventing a person's will to get them to do what I want, and I'm using the term love to do it that's an illegal use of a word. It's an illegal use of trying to get somebody to do something, right? And there's a word for it. Falls into the category of something called witchcraft. Greek word for it is beskino, and it's the attempt to control someone. And if we are not careful, we can try to find ourselves we can find ourselves trying to control people using the word agape. The word witchcraft, I know it sounds like, oh, you know, there's, you know, there must be a witch with a cauldron and brewing and, and, you know, with a long nose with a word on it and a broom. No, that's not what it is. What it is is manipulation of the words. If you look in Galatians 3.1, Paul uses the word right there. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has taken the words that were meant to help you? and twisted them in such a way and got you thinking in a bad direction. That's witchcraft. And it's something that we all have to watch out for. All right. Let's land the plane. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13:4-8. Now that we have a clear, hopefully, a clear definition of what agape love is versus what it's not, let's read the rest of the scripture here. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. It does not account. It does not keep an account of wrongs suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love does what? It never fails when you're esteeming and valuing and serving people, that never fails. There's a saying that when you're preaching the gospel, and I learned this when I was a campus minister years ago, people do not care how much you know until you show how much you care. God be love, that will never fail. Never fails. All right. Gosh, that, guys, there's just so much, you know, in prepping for this. There was just so much on love. There's so much on love. Uh, as I close out right here, let me just run down a few characteristics of, of what love, of, of, of the characteristics in love that we should strive for. Okay. Number one, love doesn't turn a blind eye. Okay. Uh, love engages with people. Jesus engaged. He didn't ignore stuff. He actually went and he engaged with people. Number two, love extends mercy. If you read the account about the Good Samaritan, he was a person that had the power to do good and didn't withhold that. Okay. That person was obedient to the command of God to go and help the individual. Number three, love goes first. If there is an issue, if there is a problem between people in a relationship and I say I love you, then what that means is I'm going to take the first step. I am going to do what needs to be done to rectify. Now, whether or not you meet me there, that's on you, okay? But I'm taking the first step. Love moves in the opposite spirit. I mean, you think about the society that we're in, it's almost like an arms race sometimes where, okay, you offend me, now I'm going to offend you. Then you offend me back, then I'm going to offend you back. And it goes on and on and on until somebody breaks the cycle. Move in the opposite spirit, and then knowing that if I truly love people, I'm going to go first. Lastly, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. We just came out of Pride Month. And I remember listening to another individual, another pastor from Oregon. And he was talking about, and this is going into Pride Month. He said, one of the things that we as Christians need to do is to love, show love. And then he goes to the scripture. This right here, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 3, I believe. And the point that he was making, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, if I don't speak truth, that's not love. Love without truth is not love. We've so tried to change the definition of the word in our culture. We try to say that the culture, not, not us, not the church, not the word. The culture says that love is equivalent to tolerance. Love is equivalent to acceptance. Hopefully, just by just what we've examined in the Greek right here, love esteems and love values, love serves. Acceptance is something completely different. So he was saying, and I was in agreement with it, that if I'm a Christian, I can't go. And I've had conversations with, with individuals at my job. If I'm a Christian, I can't go to a same-sex wedding. Why? Because right here, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. I can't celebrate that. It has nothing to do with what I like or what I think or what I feel. That's the commandment. Love rejoices in the truth. And if the truth hurts, and if the truth is, is heavy, and the truth makes us cry, it's uncomfortable sometimes. Oh, boy. You guys get a lot out of this today? Hey Amen. Music group, come on up. You know, I read this book. <clears throat> called Live Not by Lies. And um, the, the, the premise of the book was, if you know something is not true, don't participate in it. Don't, 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 don't abandon what God has placed inside of your heart. Walk in the truth. And if we call ourselves Christians and we call ourselves individuals who we're going to love, we want to do that in all situations. And I know I used one example with gay marriage and whatever. There's, there's a whole lot of other ones. There's a whole lot of other ones. You know, if you're working at your job and you know a coworker is is, is doing something crooked, and uh, you can either sign off on that and say nothing, or you can say, look, that's not right. It's the same thing, guys. Same thing. You know, as um, you know, I started this message this morning... With this saying right here, love God, love people. And there's a difference between God's love and God's acceptance. God's love is unconditional. He values and esteems everyone. However, on the flip side, his acceptance is conditional. We don't like to think about that. All we got to do is go back to Matthew 7, 21 again. All we have to do is go to uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, where there are categories. If we do not surrender ourselves to God, we can put ourselves in a bad place and say, God, I want to do it my way. God doesn't accept that. He doesn't accept rebellion. He loves you, but he's not going to accept that. And in order for us to receive God's, um, God's acceptance, the easiest way is to repent. Okay? Repent of our sins. Everyone, as a Christian, should be able to point to a day where they said, you know what, I surrendered my life this day. April 10th, 1988. If you, if you do not have a day where you said, I stopped doing it my way and I started doing it God's way, then you have to take a look at that. Find, look, I mean, look in your soul this morning and, and try to determine that, am I really, really serving God? Am I really right with the Lord? Repenting is easy. Living a life of a Christian is not. You go, you'll be against, going against the culture, okay? You'll be going against the spiritual warfare that's happening, Walking as a son or daughter of the living God is not easy. I don't, I don't ever want to tell anybody that it is, because that's selling you a false bill of goods. So as we pray this morning, <clears throat> as we go into the, the time of prayer, if you feel that you're not walking with the Lord, if you feel that your your relationship with the Lord is lacking, that you need to repent that you need to tell God that I surrender to you, I want you to pray that prayer, okay? I'm not going to lead you through any prayer or anything like that because, like I said, repentance is easy. That tugging at your heart, that's the Holy Spirit. That's not my words. That's not me. I'm not that eloquent, right? That's the Holy Spirit saying, come back to me. Come back to me. And he's offering you that opportunity to repent and come into his kingdom and have full assurance that if you were to die today, you would stand before the Lord covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ and not with your own righteousness. And the other prayer I want to pray is for those of us who are Christians. You know, there's something, uh, there's a principle that Jesus gave us in Revelations 2 called our first love. Returning to our first love. If you think about, those again, those of you guys who have been in relationships with your wife or your husband or whatever, you think about what it was like early on in that relationship. You can do anything for them. You're excited and whatever. But then over time, things kind of slow down. Jesus wants us to constantly try and aim back to going to that first love, doing the things that we did at first. Because that's where we want to be. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that's gone forth. And Lord, you said and you told us that your word would not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And Lord, I ask this morning that you would fill this room with the gift of repentance, that anyone who feels that they need to enter a relationship with you Holy Spirit, that you would do the work. And, Lord, you gave us the promise that he who began a good work in us will bring it into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And, Father, I pray for those individuals who are wanting to start that process and to walk with you. And, Lord, I pray for all of us, the rest of us, Lord God, that needed a a greater understanding of what agape love is. It is the highest form of love, of self-sacrifice, of giving of ourselves at the expense of self for other people. Lord, help us to walk in the realization of that in understanding in Jesus' name. You know, as we go into this time of communion, the very act of communion, it embodies agape love. Jesus said that this is my flesh, and this is my blood. Partake in these things, and when you do, remember me. And What is he saying to remember? Remember the sacrifice. Remember the agape that spurred that sacrifice. And we have some stations around the church as we go into a, a time of worship. I want you to seek the Lord and Ask him to guide you as you go through this, the one Christian ritual that we have, the communion. And then when you're ready, just go on over to one of the stations and partake of the, the sacrament. Prayer, pray with your family member, whatever God leads you to do. But just remember the agape that went into the sacrifice. Amen.